This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. So I got a notification or somebody mentioned to me that I had started a podcast on the courtship dimensions a while ago. And I had talked about in that podcast episode that, you know, there's 12 courtship dimensions and I covered the first six. And then I was going to, in the next podcast episode, cover the next six. And this person let me know that I hadn't actually ever released that second episode. Now, I think if I'm remembering correctly, I actually had recorded the second episode, but I can't find it. This was before I took basically the month of July off. And so I don't, you know, I have a couple of files that the podcast episodes are in depending on the stage of production that the episode is in. And I am not finding it. So I don't know what happened. I could have very easily thought about recording that second podcast episode or intended to then record that second podcast episode and just not actually do that. Uh, Like I said, you know, even before I took a break for the month of July, even before that, there were things, you know, with the remodel and the SBA loan, all that type of stuff. I had extra things on my plate. And I think I even mentioned on a podcast or two that some balls were getting dropped because there was a lot more extra on my plate. So I apologize. We'll have to link these two episodes together, like through the notes in this section. If you want to go back and, you know, re-listen to that podcast episode and refresh your memory, because there has been several podcast episodes in between the one with the first dimensions and then this one with the second dimensions. So just a little bit of a refresher about the courtship dimension or the courtship, yeah, the 12 dimensions of courtship. What they're covering in the dimensions, in each dimension is we will learn the basic elements of appropriate courtship. Now, sometimes we think of courtship as like, you know, dating what leads to a more committed relationship That's not how Dr. Carnes is using the word courtship. He's kind of talking about courtship as just what happens in our committed relationship. And this continues, you know, through dating, through marriage. It continues through the life of the relationship. And so it's not necessarily something that we just focus on in getting into committed relationships. Although I do find that it's helpful. You know, I cover it with... I think I said in the last podcast, I cover it with a lot of my uh, clients, actually. And I don't know of another resource. There may be one or two that I'm just not familiar with in other books or other resources that talk about, you know, dimensions of courtship, the way that Dr. Patrick Carnes breaks it down. Now, he also is, you know, the international expert on sex addiction. And so the way he is talking about them is in one of the workbooks. It's actually the first workbook that we work with our clients on in his 30 task model when they're working on sobriety and then recovery from sex addiction. But like I said in the last podcast episode when I was talking about this, that it is not something that I 
work on only with my sex addicted clients. I talk about it with most of my clients. And you know, if there is not sex addiction, I do have clients where there's not necessarily sex addiction. There may be some attachment issues or some family of origin patterns that are getting replicated. You know, there may be some difficulties in their relationship or even sexual difficulties in the relationship that aren't addiction related or rise to the level of addiction. And so I, I think it's just, that's kind of the clients that I, I would say that's, that's the clients that I attract. That's the clients that I work with. And so for most of them, we're working on relationship skills and we're understanding why we approach things the way that we do or why we do what we do, right? I, I do think that a large part of therapy or the intention, usually maybe it's not known to the client when they start therapy and it's not verbalized typically to the therapist, especially if the client doesn't know it themselves, they can't verbalize that. But I think a lot of clients come into therapy because they want to know why they do what they do and they want to know who they are. That I think that's an essence. Now, of course, that usually there's some issues or problems that they're seeing and that's what brings them into therapy. But underneath that, I think there are just questions around who they are and is that valuable or why they're doing what they're doing and is there a better way that they could do it so that they avoid some of the pain or heartache or grief that they're experiencing in their life. So I think most of the clients I work with and many of the clients that we work with at Healing Paths, this courtship dimension is going to be applicable or helpful to them even if there's not addiction going on or sex addiction going on. Now, Dr. Carnes talks about how in most compulsive sexual patterns, there is a distortion of normal courtship. So he says, you know, I think it's pretty normal. We know it's pretty normal for children to kind of play that I'll show you mine if you show me yours kind of thing around their body parts. And he says, and it's normal for adults to be curious about their partner's body and it's pleasurable to have your body examined. You know, he says, as, as we grow up and grow into adulthood, we should learn how to handle that aspect of getting to know someone appropriately and allowing them to get to know us appropriately. So, you know, he talks about like exhibitionists and voyeurs tend to get stuck in one part of this courtship dimension and therefore are not overall or not balanced in developing their approach to relationships or how they show up in relationships. So he created the 12 dimensions of courtship so that we can also look at like when courtship has gone awry. So that's kind of what we're looking at in sex addiction. How has this gone awry and what are the behaviors that we are saying that are evidence of this process going awry? So that's something, whether you um, are dealing with sex addiction or not, like I said, these are still applicable. And it's also interesting just to know, I think if you're not dealing with sex addiction, it's it's good to kind of be aware that sex addiction really is not about a high sex drive. It's not about sex. There's a lot more nuance and complexity to it than just making it about sex or making it about our sex drive. Although, I mean, I certainly have had a lot of initial sessions with clients coming in to seek help for their compulsive sexual behavior. And that is their theory on why they have 
the problems that they do is I just really like sex or I just have a high sex drive. I have a higher sex drive than normal people or than other people. And so again, we have to get into the complexity and the nuances around that. So I'll just kind of review the first six since it's been a while since I released that podcast episode. So the first dimension is noticing and how it's important to not just notice attractive traits, right? But we should also be noticing unattractive traits in the people that we're interested in. Uh, We should notice if, oh, this person has this trait and that typically hasn't worked well for me or this person has this trait and I don't think they are aware that they have that trait. So of course we're going to be recognizing the other person's desirable traits, but we also need to be able to notice what is not a good match for us or what is not desirable for us. And so, you know, he talks about how that means we have to be discriminating against the people that we come in contact with. The second dimension is attraction. So this is the ability to feel drawn towards others and then imagine acting on those feelings. Again, we don't need to notice this attraction with everybody. We could encounter a lot of people that we find attractive in a normal day. And that could really interfere with our ability to work or to accomplish what we need to accomplish in a given day. So just kind of a heads up or a quick overview on attraction. Then that's followed by flirtation. You know, he talks about how everyone needs to know how to flirt. Uh, Successful flirting uses some playfulness and seduction. And it gives some social cues, right, to communicate interest or attraction to the other person. Now he says, again, important to remember when this is appropriate and when this is not appropriate, just because you are attracted to somebody doesn't mean you should be flirting with them. Then we talked about demonstration. This is where we can demonstrate our prowess or we can demonstrate, you know, our strengths, what makes us a good catch or what makes us good relationship quality. That can be done in a lot of ways. The fifth dimension is romance. So he talks about, you know, I have some people who will say, even some of my female clients who are not sex addicts will say, I'm not necessarily a romantic person. I don't, like, I don't really want to be swept off my feet or anything like that, you know? And I will say I've struggled with that as well. Like sometimes some of the things that are put out as romance films or I think we're getting better at this, at least in our country, somewhat, at least in media maybe. But some of the things that are put out that are considered to be romantic to me have an edge of sexism or patriarchy with it as well. But he says, you know, romance is just the ability to experience and to express and to receive passion. So I think most of us then would recognize, oh, if that is what we're talking about when it comes to romance then yeah, I have those needs and I would fall into that category in my relationships. And then the sixth one that I talked about in the past episode and where we ended was on the dimension of individuation. So this is that ability to not lose yourself as you move into relationships. So in in love addiction, typically we'll find that, like the person is who the relationship needs them to be, right? And they haven't necessarily gone through that process of differentiation and moved into individuation, having a solid sense of self that is functional and that 
is an operational foundation. So, you know, sometimes, especially at the beginning of, you know, a romantic relationship, people can get immersed, right? And even some of my clients who, you know, are older, they're like, oh my gosh, I feel like I'm in junior high with some of these feelings, or I feel like I'm in high school. I'm like, right. I mean, I don't know that we outgrow that ability to just be, you know, immersed in the newness of that relationship and the the novelty and the excitement of that stage of, you know, kind of that honeymoon stage that we talk about. I don't know why we call it the honeymoon when in reality, the honeymoon typically happens later in the relationship, but you know, just that ability to think this other person is amazing. And that person thinks that we are amazing. It's also a vulnerable time period where we can overlook red flags. And so that process of individuation helps us kind of stay grounded, helps us know what our boundaries are, what we are okay with, what we are not okay with, to be able to communicate in the relationship and show up in the relationship as I am, not as I think you want me to be, or I think that you are attracted to me this way, and so I will pretend I am only that way. People need to feel free to be actually who they are without the fear of disapproval or control by the other. So in you know this stage, we're telling the truth. We're not necessarily intimidated, we're being vulnerable. Vulnerability can be intimidating, but if we're in this stage where we're sharing freely who we are, that should be safe. You know, sometimes people start the relationship in this stage where they're opening up and telling you their whole life story and you're like, hey, we just met, like I've known you an hour. So, you know, it's important when that is happening, but also it is important that it does happen. There is a dimension of developing the relationship and of courtship with each other. So those were the first six. Covered them a little bit more in depth in the previous episode. Again, we'll link that in the show notes of this episode so that hopefully people can identify that those two actually bookend each other and belong together, even though there are several episodes in the middle of them. So let's get into the second six dimensions of courtship. So dimension number seven is about intimacy. Now, when I talk about intimacy with clients, I think a lot of times in our culture, in our communities, we think of intimacy as sexual intimacy. And that is one way to be intimate, but that's not the only way we can be intimate. And I you know, will tell clients that I find intimacy works best when we're hitting it in multiple areas, not just sexual intimacy, but we're also emotionally intimate. We're also intellectually intimate, we're spiritually intimate, meaning the way we show up with each other allows us to know each other in ways that other people don't necessarily have access to those more vulnerable or those more deep core parts of who we are. So Dr. Carnes talks about how as the exhilaration of early passion subsides, so that was the stage I was talking about a little bit ago, he says that now partners enter the attachment phase. Now, for some people, and we'll talk about how this can go awry, they're attaching way too quickly before they know if they should even attach to this person. We often get, you know, intake inquiries 
and they're dealing with infidelity, a newly discovered you know, affair, or they're dealing with a newly discovered sex addiction. Maybe it's a disclosed sex addiction, but it's new to the partner and either the partner or the addicted person is reaching out to us and saying, hey, we need couples work. And, you know, I try to be kind and put myself in that place that they're coming from, understanding this is the place that they're coming from. And there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of uncertainty in that stage of where they are coming from. And I want to be sensitive to that. But also, there is no way we're ready for couples work at this point. Like, often we find with, you know, if we get both of them in starting therapy at the same time at our clinic, we don't even know if they can be in the same room together and not become highly dysregulated. So typically, you know, they're, they're saying, we need couples work, this is what's going on, and can you get us in today, right? So I'll usually, you know, through our system, we can text them. So usually we're engaging in a text. Sometimes they want a phone call, we'll talk on the phone and just kind of say, that's not going to be effective and let us tell you, you know, why and here's the approach we need. And so we get each of them in with their own therapist and depending on, you know, what's going on with the couple, you know, the therapist kind of are left to determine when we can start joint work. Now for us, joint work is not couples work, right? And we may say to our individual clients, like, I don't know if this relationship should work. Like we don't know and you don't know. It's not about whether I know or not, right? But you also don't know that. Maybe you want it to, but we need to get more stable. We need to get more information. If we're working with the partner, with the other one, you know, the addicted one, we're saying, hey, you need to get more information about how this came on board, why you have a tendency to do this, because the last thing we want is for this to be replicated again with your partner, because this is extremely traumatizing for their nervous system and for them as a person and how they see themselves. And so we've got some work to do before we can make some predictions about this relationship. Oftentimes I will tell the person I'm working with, like the relationship you had brought you right here. And so we know that that relationship didn't work because there are some major issues when you're seeing me typically that have happened in the relationship. We need to understand what those issues are and how they occurred, but we're not going to go back and bring life to that relationship. We're working to establish something new and we can't do that yet until we understand how this previous one happened. So, you know, I'll say that with either the addicted one or the betrayed one, whoever I'm working with, I'll usually talk about like, let's give some space for grieving what was and the hopes and dreams that you both had when you entered that relationship and that that relationship didn't get you guys where you thought you wanted to go. Let's grieve some of that and understand it and process it. And, and maybe, maybe you guys can stay together. I don't know, maybe not, but we have to keep working. And I usually tell them eventually both you and your partner will know if this is workable, if you guys can come together, create a new relationship and build on that, or if it's not, and if it's not, then maybe we have a better, healthier or more amicable divorce. 
So that's kind of what we're talking about with the couples when we're getting them, when they come in for therapy. And yeah, there is an attachment injury that has happened, definitely for the partner. But if there's evidence of infidelity or sex addiction, pornography addiction, there's intimacy issues with that person as well. And so we have to have a pretty good sense of self and processing previous relationships, understanding, you know, the first, I usually talk about like the first 18 years of our life, we, you know, maybe up to 20, we kind of have to have a good understanding of how that has impacted me, what I'm likely to do if, you know, that gets triggered or if that those buttons get pushed, how I become aware when those buttons are pushed and how I can have a second response and not just let those previous experiences run the show. Now, for some of you listening, maybe, you know, that's not those first 18 to 20 years of your life were healthier than that or smoother than that. And that's great. Like, that's not typical of the clients we typically work with. But I do know other therapists who, you know, work with those clients. And I think the work goes quicker. And that's that's to be understood, right? Because if there's less attachment injuries in the first 18, 20 years of life, then there's less complexity when, you know, they're typically in their 30s, 40s coming to therapy and seeing one of our therapists. So as we talk about intimacy, again, I think it's important to understand that that's not just something that happens sexually. And actually, sexual intimacy is helped by having, you know, other forms of intimacy, emotional intimacy, mental, intellectual intimacy, spiritual intimacy. Those things actually help create a deeper bond in the sexual intimacy. So I don't know that we want to, you know, eliminate the other forms of intimacy and only have sex. I mean, that's what has happened for many of our clients who are sex addicted is that they're, you know, there's maybe sex, but not with the intimate part. And that's not working for them. You know, they're seeking therapy because it doesn't fulfill them. It's not satisfying. They're not finding meaning in that. So little bit of a tangent there, but just wanted to talk about intimacy. Patrick Carnes talks about how in the intimacy phase, the relationship deepens in its meaning and in its integrity. I think it requires some integrity in order to really have intimacy. You know, integrity meaning both of us are true to ourselves and we can hold truth for the other person. We can be true to them. We can have each other's backs. We can, you know, be willing to see where they're coming from and understand their point of view or their perspective. Now he talks about how this is going to provide profound vulnerability and that the vulnerability is ongoing and it's more difficult than the exhilaration of discovery that occurs in early romance. So he says, you know, this part of the relationship dimension is being fully known and staying anyway, right? Like this person gets me, you know, the 12-step ACOA saying is warts and all, right? So they know me good, bad, and otherwise, and they're choosing to stay. And I know the other person good, bad, and otherwise, and I also choose to stay. So that's the intimacy 
dimension. The next dimension, number eight, is about touching. And again, I pointed this out in the first six podcast episodes that I covered, talking about how these are standalone items, right? Or standalone dimensions. They're not necessarily like he's not cramming them all into one. It's not individuation slash intimacy slash touching or, you know, intimacy slash touching slash foreplay, which is the next dimension that is coming. Each of them kind of obviously interplays with the other dimensions and each dimension either supports the other dimensions or gets in the way of supporting and having a fully intimate relationship, but they're also standalone items, right? So touching comes next. Now, for some of you, maybe you've already in the relationship had touching and that's okay. That doesn't mean that that's necessarily a bad thing, but understanding touch and understanding that physical touch requires trust, care, and judgment. Now, touching, I think, affirms the other while also still being respectful of timing, the situation, and boundaries. So just because we're in a significant relationship with somebody doesn't mean that I get to touch you whenever I want to or whenever I feel a need to because that would be a boundary violation, right? I'm projecting my needs for touch onto you. It also works vice versa. You know, if touch has been misused in our past, right? Whether it's been sexualized at a young age or whether there's been physical abuse in a family and so touch was seen as maybe dangerous or abusive or even maybe for people who were touch deprived due to neglect as a child the family just really wasn't physically affectionate they weren't necessarily connected or aware of your needs as a child emotional needs, physical needs, whatever those were. And so touch was just not part of that equation. We know that, you know, people who experienced touch in ways that were abusive or not healthy, sometimes that need for touch goes against their better judgment. And, you know, they've created a life where they aren't aware of that need for touch or they believe that touch is a bad thing. You know, I, I will say, based on my family of origin and the home that I grew up in, I, you know, grew up with touch that was abusive. It was usually hitting, throwing, something like that, slapping maybe. Yeah, I would say that's maybe how touch was used. We were not a very physically affectionate family. We didn't, you know, hug necessarily or say I love you when we left um, I think I've shared before, I don't ever recall kissing my dad or having my dad kiss me or really even hug each other. That just wasn't part of my family, but we could be abused by our parents or sometimes there was sibling to sibling as well. I think if if it's common for parents to be physically abusive with each other, verbally abusive with each other, that can then lead into kids being part of that physical abuse or verbal abuse And then as kids, I mean, you know, we're designed to kind of do what has been done until or unless we recognize that that's harmful. We take it now steps to intervene and to learn something different. So I grew up really not comfortable with touch. I would say deprived of healthy touch. 
but also more in the camp of like, I'm okay if nobody ever touches me and I'm not going to touch other people. And that wasn't a healthy place for me. You know, it just created different issues. And so being able to reclaim that need for touch, you know, initially I was kind of like, okay, in theory, I get that. On paper, I understand that as a human being, I'm wired for some of that physical touch. I get that. In practice, please know. And it was just something I have had to work through throughout my life. I think for the most part, and I think I've said this before, having kids, I mean, not that that would change everybody, but it did change me. You know, young kids are very touch, right? They're climbing you. They're wiping their fingers on you. They're wiping their nose on you. They're throwing up on you. They're they're just touching, right? And I mean, there were some days that I was like, okay, my husband would come home and I'd be like, I need an hour of nobody touching me and nobody needing me. Like I'm overwhelmed with touch. It's not like I was angry at my kids for doing that. I understood they were young. I understood that was just part of what they did as kids. Maybe not necessarily what I did as a kid, but what they did as kids. But I had to work to increase my touch tolerance. And once I could increase my touch tolerance, then I had to work to actually embrace healthy touch and to be able to embrace that as a need that I have and that that's a healthy thing and it's a good thing. And I I feel like I'm there. I feel like I've probably been there for at least the last decade of my life, maybe a few years prior to that. But for sure, I think the last decade of my life, I've been in a place where I understand my need for touch and I am okay with healthy touch. And I actually, there are times that that has happened where there has you know been moments in my life that are difficult and there's been healthy touch. And actually it feels good to me. It feels connecting to me. And that's when I kind of was like, okay, I think I'm there now that like, not just that I got through it because I could do that. I could get through a hug, but actually that it felt good. So yes, I think touching can affirm the other person. And I have had that experience as of late, not as of late. I mean, the last decade, that's not, it's not super recent, but just, you know, I've been able to understand how touch can affirm me as a person and my being able to use touch, you know, with other people that I am in close relationships with can also affirm them as a person. I think anytime we're sexualizing touch or, you know, we're touching without consent, that will betray touch more nuanced than I think we often give it credit for. You know, sometimes like this weekend, my husband and I went to Costco and we were, you know, just walking out with the person checking our receipts. And I've had this guy check our receipt before, not very often, but I've had him before. And, you know, he he was touching everybody in the line as they're going out. And, you know, I was closest to him. And so I knew, and he was touching the women, right? I mean, the person in front of us, he had like clapped the man on the back. But, you know, again, he kind of just touches me, which I don't need that. I'm not asking for that. You didn't ask if it's okay to do that with me. I, it wasn't like, I don't, I don't need the person checking my receipt to touch me. That doesn't feel affirming to me. I know some people will say, well, I'm just very touchy. My family is very touchy. And I'm like, great, I'm not family. Like, keep that within. 
those circles, right? Like this is a stranger to me. And, you know, I mean, it was kind of, it was the weekend. So it's earlier in the morning and he's like, Hey, I know it's early in the morning, but is he behaving today? I'm like, he's not my toddler. And what am I going to do if my toddler's not behaving? Right. And he's like, I, I mean, I know there's still time left in the day and he may not behave. And I just, I don't know. I have a hard time smiling or engaging that type of talk. I mean, he's, he was older than me, not a ton older than me. It's not like he's in his sixties or, I mean, he's probably in his sixties, but maybe not his late sixties, early seventies. I just find that chit chat or that superficial conversation grating on my nerves. And again, I don't need you to touch me as I'm leaving the store. You can count my items. You can check my receipt. I don't really need the touch. But I also have found, and we know this, that touch You know, I mean, touch can be seductive, which is appropriate in the right situations and the right timing. Um, Touch can be very seductive, but it can also be misleading. It can also be unwarranted. It can also be unwanted. And touch can be extraordinarily healing. And so again, just kind of having conversations in the relationship about trust and knowing where we are and what that looks like and what we need to be aware of in that dimension of the relationship. Like I said, then we move into foreplay. And, you know, in repeated surveys, most people say that foreplay is the best part of sex. Now, often in our culture, unfortunately, it's often skipped over because of time pressures and stress and just the need to get on to the next thing. And so we skip foreplay in order to have sex and Like I said, most surveys, people report that this is the best part of sex. Now, I mean, I think it's important that the next part of sex is also good. But I think, you know, understanding that they can and often do work very well together, even though they're maybe separate dimensions, can be important in understanding healthy relationships that have healthy sexuality. So foreplay can be the expression of sexual passion, you know, without genital intercourse. So we're not actually having sex, but we can express passion. You know, there can be holding, holding hands, holding each other, snuggling. There can be kissing. There can be some sexual play, flirting that can build the sexual tension. It can be pleasurable. It can be erotic. You know, sometimes I will say to clients, I mean, foreplay is what, can be happening in between moments of sexuality. So how does the couple interact with each other? Again, not that you're going to make your children uncomfortable because you're so all over each other. That, again, is not appropriate timing or place, nor necessary for foreplay to be an enjoyable part of it. But it's the relationship that the couple has and what that looks like and what goes into that relationship when... They're not being sexual with each other. It adds to sexual intercourse when there are moments of sexual intercourse. So the next dimension is intercourse. And Dr. Karn says this is more than the exchange of body fluids. This is the ability to surrender oneself to passion, to another person, to let go, to trust yourself, to trust your body, to trust your partner in this vulnerable process. That's not typically what we think of when we think of sex. And 
you know, as we talk about this particular dimension, a lot of people are like, oh, I don't really trust myself and I don't really trust my body. I'm like, okay, then we're going to have some sexual issues, right? Or I don't trust my partner. I mean, I have sex so that they'll leave me alone, but I don't trust them. Yeah, also problems with sexuality, maybe problems with messaging. You know, Dr. Carnes talks about that while intercourse can be extremely pleasurable, it's also an indicator of how you're able to give up control because sex works best when it's not controlled, when we're not insisting on a certain outcome. He says, to give oneself over to passion requires a true abandonment of how things are supposed to turn out, end quote. Actually, I'm going to continue. So he says, quote, many people limit themselves or fail in orgasm simply because of problems with trust and control, end quote. So some things to think about there. The next dimension is commitment. So commitment is the ability to bond, not just attach, but to actually bond with another person, which is a form of attachment, but it's a deeper it's a deeper symbol of attachment, that bonding. Like we are now bonded, we're together. Now, important to keep in mind, you know, and I, I recommend often Dr. Carnes' book, The Betrayal Bond, because I think it's important to understand we can also bond in ways that repeat unhealthy, dysfunctional, abusive patterns in our lives. So it's not just that we bond to healthy people. If abuse dysfunction, unhealthy attachment has been part of our formative years, it always has the potential to replicate itself later in our life. So I think that's something to keep in mind. You know, when we talk about trauma bonding, you know, sometimes I've seen on TikTok, I'm not on TikTok a lot, but sometimes my clients talk to me or my kids talk to me about therapists on TikTok. I have one client that's always like, you really need to get on TikTok because the therapists on TikTok don't talk like you do. They don't say the same things that you do. And I'm like, well, I have a podcast. Go to my podcast. I'm not on TikTok at this point. But from one of my clients, she was saying, I understood trauma bonding. Like you both go through like a scary thing and now we're bonded. So, I mean, this is a little bit older than, you know, the client who mentioned it to me, but I'm thinking of like Sandra Bullock and Keanu Reeves in that movie Speed, right? Where the bus breaks went out and they were on this bus careening down the roads and high intensity. I mean, with trauma bonded relationships, there is a level of high intensity, right? But they weren't necessarily cruel to each other. When I am talking about betrayal bonds, trauma bonds, those types of relationships, it is high intensity, right? But it's high intensity of kindness infused into the relationship and also high levels of cruelty that get infused into the relationship. We're not supposed to be in relationships where cruelty is one of the factors that we're dealing with. And our relationships and us as people are not meant to have good outcomes when cruelty is part of our relationships. But if that has happened, if that happened with one of your parents, then that could be likely to happen with one of your romantic relationships, with one of your significant other relationships. There can also be that replication of incredible kindness, also incredible amounts of cruelty. So we have to work to, you know, when I'm talking to clients and this is the situation, or even couples, if I'm talking and this has happened, I'm saying, 
you have got to figure out how you got into somebody's threat system, which is where you are if you're cruel or if you've betrayed them or, you know, if you've really acted in a way that betrays the bond that you have with them. You need to figure out like how you got into that threat system in the first place. And you've got to get out of that. And you, you can't keep combining the kindness and the cruelty in your relationships. It's not an equation that's actually going to work and produce good results and produce healthy people. Now, sometimes in addiction, right, we talk about how addiction can be described as failing to bond to people. It's a failing to, you know, bond in a way that forms deep, meaningful relationships. Obviously, that doesn't happen if your parents were able to do that for you. That's not going to happen. You're not likely to get into addiction where you are not able to find or form deep, meaningful relationships. But commitment is really saying, you matter to me and you matter enough that I will be faithful to you. You matter enough that like I hold your wants and needs parallel to my wants and needs. And I'm not going to act for myself if that is detrimental to you. It's really what commitment, it's what we're talking about. Now, again, I will say initially when we're, you know, figuring out and developing these deeper relationships, there's going to be times we step on each other's toes. There's going to be times we make some mistakes. I'm not thinking. I was thinking of me and forgot about you. But that's not the level of betrayal that comes about when there's sex addiction, infidelity, affairs, that pornography, that type of stuff. And instead, it's more about fine-tuning and learning how to live in each other's space and how to respond, keeping their story in mind, also knowing my story. There's just some things that where we're going to step on each other and maybe have some hurt feelings in that process. And I, I don't know that that ever completely goes away. I think if those things are resolved well, the next time we you know, inadvertently step on our partner's toes or bump into them. And we are like, oh my gosh, I'm sorry. I hurt you. I didn't mean to. I wasn't thinking. We believe that, right? Because for the most part, this level of hurt hasn't risen to a whole new level of betrayal. Now he talks about how, you know, if we grew up in families where we learned not to count on others, or like I have said, one of the beliefs that I arrived at my young adult years with, and I could even verbalize that at the time or close after that time period was just that like relationships are a liability and it is best not to have them. Now I was young and somewhat naive and immature in my development to understand that like, it's not really possible to not have relationships as human beings. We're not really meant to just live solo and live as an Island, but that's the belief that I arrived at my young adult years with. And he says, you know, if you learned not to count on others, you start to look for what you can count on. Alcohol, sex, drugs, pornography, high risk always does what they promise, right? They always do what they promise. The caveat here is that a pathological relationship with a mood altering behavior or a substance doesn't actually fill the void that's left by a lack of commitment. So that's when, you know, I'll start to see them coming into therapy and saying, like, I have a lot of sex with people, but it's not actually, like, I'm not happy. 
or I'm not fulfilled in my life or I just keep getting more and more and more, but like I'm wondering if there's a problem. And then the 12th dimension of courtship is renewal. So in renewal, we're looking at the capacity to sustain all the preceding dimensions in an existing relationship. So if you get married or you make a commitment to somebody, that doesn't mean that we stop flirting or expressing passion. Now there is a difference between being attached to someone out of a habit versus really being devoted and bonded with this other person, which, you know, in order to be bonded and attached means the meaning, right, in our life is intertwined with the journey that the two of us are taking together. And so I get a lot of fulfillment and meaning in my life. And a source of that is in my relationship. And so it's easy to, I wouldn't say it's easy. I've been married 29 years. And, you know, over the years, there's been maybe some easier periods than others. Definitely having young children was not easy for us to, you know, really renew kind of that relationship. We made time for that. I mean, I was a therapist and so I was like, oh, we have to make time for this. Also had some negative beliefs. Like when our third daughter was born, I was like, we either are going to make time for our relationship or we're going to get divorced. And my husband was like, wait, wait, whoa, whoa, what? Like, and I'm like, no, we will. I think we will. Like, and he was just like, okay, I'm fine making time for each other. Things are pretty crazy. We had three kids in three years. That was a lot. Not planning it that way, but that's how it turned out. And so he was like, I'm fine to make time for that. But like, let's like, what is this? Like, or we'll get divorced. Like, are you thinking about that? And I was like, oh no, I don't want that to happen. Okay. So let's, let's not like be talking about that. Okay. I get it. So we know that in successful couples, you know, that partners continue their courtship in the relationship. They continued to show the other person that they're a worthy partner. They continue to believe and show themselves that they are a worthy partner. And they continue to make efforts to attract each other. That attraction shouldn't end simply because we're older or we've been married a long time. Now, sometimes I think it's trickier to figure out how to keep that passion and attraction moving because you know each other so well and you know you kind of heard all the stories. So there's not a lot to fall back on from our previous past. But what I have found in being married 29 years and just being the age that I am, right? So I'm 52, my husband's 51. For like six months out of the year, he's two years younger than me. He's So he just had a birthday. So he was 50 and I was 52. And he loves to be like, oh, you're two years older than me. And I'm like, not really. I'm six months older than you. Six months in a year, right? But I think it can be one of those things where we have to, find new ways of seeing the same person. You know, sometimes I can look at him or we're having a conversation and, you know, I've now known him more than half of my life. That's kind of incredible to me. I've known him and he's been an active part of my life. Like we started to be friends and kind of hang out as friends when I was 16, he was 15. That's a long time that he has been in one of the circles in relationships in my life. And there are times where we're talking and I see that boy that I was friends with and I see who he is today and there's been some really big changes 
And there's also not been a whole lot of changes. And both are good, right? And I'm sure he would say the same about me. There's, I think there's been a lot of really big changes. But I'm sure he can still look at me and see the person I was when we initially met and we're getting to know each other and hanging out as friends. The other thing, you know, that I think when, when I'm talking with couples or clients about this renewal phase, like we know that novelty or uncertainty can spark some things in the relationship and bring maybe a, a new level of excitement or passion or an ability to see this person again into long-term relationships. I'll usually say not so much uncertainty that like, I don't know if we're going to be married in six months. Not that type of uncertainty. But when couples who have been married for a while go on vacation, you know, that's novel. And usually they're more sexual when they go on vacation than when they're just home living their life, going to work, whatever they do, right? Maybe not if they're going on vacation with their kids, right? Or their teenagers. Sometimes that interferes with the ability to increase sex on vacation. But we know that there's some novelty that excites passion, that is attractive, that's arousing to us and that we look at and think, wow, I've known you for this long and I am seeing this about you that maybe I know this about you, but maybe I haven't seen it for a while or, you know, just whatever the novelty piece. Now, we also know that there's some predictability, right? Or some stability in relationships that also can help relationships. Sometimes the novelty or the uncertainty and the certainty can work against each other, right? Sometimes we can make life so certain that we get bored in our relationship. I think it's important that, you know, we're not getting bored. And if we are getting bored, why? And what are you doing to bring some stimulation or some passion or some excitement to the relationship? Have you talked about that with your partner, right? Have you said like, hey, I'm feeling like we're just getting stuck in a rut, going through the routine and the motions of life. And we're not necessarily feeling connected to each other. I feel like our level of connection has dwindled as life has taken on a certain amount of certainty, right? This is what we do on the weekends. This is what we do on Monday through Friday. This is just what life looks like. And there's not a lot of variance from our routine. So, so much predictability and so much routine can kill the passion or the excitement or the arousal in a relationship. Now, sometimes I've had, you know, couples who are like, okay, that does it. We're just always going on vacation. Well, that would also create some certainty, right? Every weekend we go on vacation and sure, maybe the places you go change, but there's always that tendency for it to also become just part of the routine and lose some of its uncertainty, lose some of the spontaneity to life that can be important. But one of the things that doesn't necessarily change, right, is us as human beings, you know, like there are things I've learned about myself at 52. I mean, it's not drastically different than 51, but 52 has been different. Life has thrown me some things that I didn't know were going to happen when I was 52. And you know, the way that I have encountered it at 52 versus 22 were different and I'm different and that's good. But also being able to talk about that with my spouse and for him to 
see me and see me as I was at 22 and see me as I am today at 52 and and know that there's evolution in me. And that doesn't change. It, It creates a maybe organic spontaneity in the relationship that can be exciting. And same with my partner, right? I mean, he's encountering life at this age in ways that we haven't before because we just haven't been this age. And as we share and as we take time to check in and get vulnerable with each other, can we let each other know how much we mean to each other and how we see each other, how we have impacted each other? You know, sometimes when I talk with clients, they may say like, I don't like to hear how I'm impacting other people. Whether it's good or bad, I just don't want to know about it. And I'm like, oh, okay, we might need to build some tolerance for that because I think it is important to be able to communicate in our significant relationships, friendships, maybe some of the family relationships with siblings or your kids, your partner, to be able to express to them and say, this is what you mean in my life. This is what you mean to me. This is how you have impacted me. And I don't know if I would, I don't think I would be the same person if I didn't know you. And I'm so grateful for our relationship. And I'm grateful that you have come into my life and that our paths crossed and whatever. You know, those types of relationships are, I think, important. They're part of what says this is meaningful and valuable to me. And I'm blessed to have these types of relationships and to have had these people come into my life who have, you know, maybe been part of my healing, part of making life fun and enjoyable, and, you know, just part of creating a little community for me where I am safe and I can be vulnerable and people can know me pretty fully and I can know them. Those are special things that we, I think as human beings, need. And we also want those things. And I think we do better when we can have those things and create those things. And so hopefully, as we've talked about these different dimensions of courtship, you're learning some things about relationships that can add to the meaning of the relationships in your life. Now, I will say just one little caveat, because I know we're about at time for this podcast episode. I have a colleague uh, who works with me and, you know, she will go through the same dimensions And sometimes with her clients, she'll say, we're not going to look at this in terms of romantic relationships or people that you've dated or whatever the situation is. I want to look at all of these dimensions in terms of your friendships. Because I think we also, I think we need safe, meaningful, fulfilling relationships with our significant other. We also need those types of friendships. I don't think we can pin all of our needs on one person. So I think we need those with a couple of people who are close friends with us as well. And, you know, sometimes her clients are like, I'm supposed to talk to you about intercourse with my friendships. Like, I don't have that. And she's like, no, we're not talking about intercourse, but we're talking about, can you trust yourself with them? Do you trust them? Can you surrender to their wants or what they need in that moment? You know, is there some abandonment of self in this relationship that not in a way that betrays the self, but that enhances the self, right? And so, you know, most of it, like, I mean, again, foreplay, they're like, I don't flirt with my friends. And she's like, 
But do you, she will say, um, I'm not saying flirt, but like, do you talk about the fact that like, are there social cues or verbal cues that you say to your friends that tell them what they mean in your life, right? That's kind of what flirting is doing. We're social cues that say, I'm interested. How does that look in friendships? So again, I think sometimes our, our society has a tendency to overemphasize our significant relationships or our, you know, like our significant other and that relationship and that relationship alone. And I think some of the time constraints and just the necessities of life as we, you know, if we're raising a family or having kids or building a career or whatever that is, sometimes that can make it difficult to have friendships in adulthood. But I don't think it makes them less important or that we actually don't need them. So something to think about if you're listening to these two podcast episodes and thinking about your you know, most significant relationship with your significant other. Also, it's important to go back and think about it in terms of friendships. So just some things to, to keep on your radar and to be thinking about. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.